The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. I welcome you this morning to Fellowship Bible Church. Thank you for coming. I'm glad to uh, be able to worship together with you. I will take my bullets in and look at a couple of announcements before we begin our service of worship officially here. I uh, just mentioned that tonight we'll be back for more of uh, good Bible study and uh, fellowship together, worship and song. We're uh, looking forward tonight to a question, uh, answer hopefully, to a question about uh, the end times that I received, uh, I think early this last week. And so I worked on that a little bit. And uh, it's about the final rebellion of uh, the evil one against the Lord at the end of the millennial kingdom and Armageddon. And what are those two things? And are they the same? Are they different? Uh, or whatever. So I'll show you about that this evening, Lord willing, at uh, 6 o'clock. Let's pay attention to God's Word together. Try to glean something from it. The issues that we're looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 are kind of big issues. Big things. Things that affect how we think. How we decide. How we choose. How we act how we interact and relate to other people in our Christian lives. And uh, there are a number of things that we can learn here from it. And I hope that uh, this will be helpful to you. Last time, you remember, we began our study of chapter 8 in 1 Corinthians. And we said there are four key elements or four key concepts that we have to understand if we are to really understand the uh, chapter. And really, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 as well. By the way, if you're online, welcome. We're glad that you're with us uh, and uh, obviously glad too that you're here present uh, in the room. We're glad that we can uh, be able to do this uh, peacefully and uh, without difficulties in these days. Um, so we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you have a Bible, do turn there and follow along as we look at it. We said last time that there are four concepts. Number one, knowledge. Two, love, three, conscience, and four, liberty. You have to have knowledge, love, know about the conscience, and understand liberty. And not just understand those four concepts. The power in them, the Christianness in them, comes when you put them together and you use them all together properly, as we'll see through our study of the remainder of chapter 8 today. So, remember the problem. At least, at least as I introduced it last time, the first part of the problem was this issue of food offered to idols. And what do we do with that? Now, later on in my message, uh, if we get there, I think we shall, uh, you'll see that there's another deeper and more severe problem that the Corinthians were having to deal with. And I think the one that we've dealt with so far is the launching pad into the second one. They are going to say in their mind, look, we have this freedom to eat this meat. We know that it's okay. So then they take it to the next step. And the next step is much too far, as we'll see. But we begin with this as just a kind of introductory notion of eating meat, eating food, sacrifice to idols. Idols were everywhere, we said last time. Uh, That was their social life. You didn't go out to Applebee's 
if you do that, or Bob Evans, or you know uh, Red Robin, and get one of those gourmet burgers that they have. Mm, very good. Yeah, uh, you didn't go to one of those places. You went to idol temples and had meals. You would have a meal as part of either a cultic worship situation, uh, or you, when I when I say cult, by the way, I mean the religion, the worship. Sometimes you'll read of the cult or cultus of ancient Israel. That's just speaking about the, that's an academic term to speak about the religion and the forms of that religion in ancient Near East, uh, in, um, in Israel in our, in our case, but in the ancient Near East. So don't, don't think cult automatically means like modern day cult. Of course, in this case, when we're talking about idols, it does mean a cult basically, but they would go to these places for social events. Family meals, birthday parties, any kind of party, commemorations, holidays, and and uh, the the you know deity, whatever it was, and so it was a real kind of central thing to their culture. Uh, they sacrificed the meat. They had some of the meat for the priest. And some of the meat was was burned up for the god or goddess, and some of the meat was shared with the people. Some of the meat could end up being sold in the grocery store, so to speak, for people to buy. And so you had all of this going on. And then the consequential, you know, uh, or, well, yeah, the, in consequence, the issue of conscience. You know, what if I buy this meat? What do I do? Uh, should I eat it? Does it bring me in close enough association with the idol that I'm defiled and that I can't do that? So lots of, lots of things going on for them. And so we talked about knowledge. We talked about love conscience, and liberty last time. We looked at verses 1 to 3, which put together two of those concepts, knowledge and love. Remember, he said, we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up and love edifies. Knowledge wrongly used or wrongly placed just puffs somebody up. It causes pride instead of edification. And then he mentions about knowing God. And, and knowing in verses 2 and 3, and if, if you're known by God, uh, then you'll love God, and that's the evidence of, of your knowledge of God, of your salvation. So knowledge and love together. He wants you to know, but He wants you to know in love. That's one of those hard things for people sometimes. That you can know a lot, and that makes you a proud person. You want to know, if you want to, you want to be right with God, you can know a lot, but you have to be a humble person about that. Of course, the knowledge here is in particular in the context of this uh, food offered to idols. And what is the true knowledge that Paul is talking about? Verses 4 through 6, we looked at last time as well. He says, therefore, now getting back to the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. Idols are just so much wood or metal, or a combination thereof. They're just statues. They're empty. Now, we modified that by remembering chapter 10, which talks about the things that the Gentiles or pagans sacrifice. They sacrifice to what? Demons. Okay, So there is a demonic element to idol worship so that we can't just say, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you bow down to an idol because it's just a, it's just a statue. It's just rock 
or whatever. No, it's, it's not that. It's, there is more to it than that. But in terms of the actual thing itself, there, there is no such thing as another God with a lowercase or uppercase G. That doesn't exist. Let's make sure we have that baked into our minds, folks, because you will hear people who will talk about other gods as if they are real and they are not. The God of uh, Islam is not real. The God of Mormonism is not the same as the Christian God and is therefore not real. The Mormons have a polytheistic system. Multiple gods, multiple universes, multiple gods. Men can become gods. That is, a, that is just a terrible wrong teaching. Very bad. Very misleading. Um, but there is no other one God. There is no other God but the one true and living God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God of whom we sang this morning, holy, 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 you know, the blessed Trinity, all of that. That's the God whom we worship, the only one that is, the one who created. Okay? So it's not an imaginary thing. It's a real thing that we're talking about. The true, the true actual living God who made us and to whom we owe our worship. So this true knowledge is this Christian confession. There is only one God. Even though, verse 5 says, there are many so-called gods. Everybody's running around saying, my God and your God and his God and everybody else's God. There are many of them, hundreds of them, perhaps in Corinth. Dozens and dozens at least. And perhaps in, in Athens, you remember, Paul went there and he saw kind of this, this whole yard of, of statues. You have them all over the place. The Hindu gods, thousands of them. I don't know, there's probably more than thousands of them. Uh, but it's all false. It's all figments of people's imagination driven by demonic forces ultimately. So, God's the only true and living God. There are other so-called gods, but they're not true. Verse 6, Yet for us there is one, the Father, from whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Through Him the Father created everything, and through whom we live. So, we know all of that. And we're settled on that, I trust, uh, for each one of us. Uh, perhaps if you're a new believer, however, you haven't been as as rock solid on that as you should. Or you're a young believer and you hear all this stuff about other gods and you wonder, you know, I mean, you see in the media all the time, the movies and, uh, you know, the, 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 the superhero kinds of things and Roman mythology and Greek gods and every, everybody talks about all these gods and there's this god and that god and they're always fighting and affecting things on the earth and it just kind of... I mean, we were taught that stuff, I remember, in seventh grade, the Roman and Greek gods. Uh, I don't recall spending a whole lot of time on Christianity. By the way, if you know a classroom that wants to have a pastor come to teach a session on what Christianity is, I will be at the front of the line to volunteer, okay? You let me know, I will be there because these children need to know what Christianity really teaches. I only wish... I could do that. Charter school, public school, private school, doesn't matter to me. Uh, let's go and get that knowledge into these young ones' minds and hearts. So we, we know that and we preach that and we teach that and we confess that. But look at verse 7. However, here's the new stuff for today. However, 
There is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol. Now he's saying there are some Christians he's talking about in your church, Corinthians, have this consciousness of the idol until now eat it, the food, as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat it are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So unfortunately, there are some believers who don't have the level of certainty that Paul says we have about the true knowledge of Christianity. At least not yet they don't have that certainty. So some of our new believing friends are confused because, I'll use a modern phrase here, because of bad prior programming. Okay, They have been pre-programmed by all of the false teaching, all the preaching that they've heard on the media, all the ideas that are out there, all the pluralism, all the polytheism. That stuff has been poured into them from birth practically. Especially if they didn't grow up. Can you imagine not growing up in a Christian household with some kind of... I mean, let me not even say, you know born-again, fundamental, Bible-thumping Christians, just people who are generally Christian. Today, that's not the case. Most homes are nothing. The kids grow up with nothing. They have no clue except what they watch on TV and video games and all of that sort of stuff. Well, we have a vacation Bible school, right? We try to teach kids the basics and get them on, on the right track. But imagine that. Bad programming all the way through their lives. They have, they have not yet reached what I call escape velocity, these new believers of the old superstitions. You know, those, the, the gravity of the scruples and worldly ideas are holding them down. They haven't been able to escape from those things. Now, we who are more mature, the Bible says, ought to bear with the scruples of those who are weak as we instruct them in the ways of God more perfectly. I'm reflecting on a passage in Acts chapter 18 where Aquila and Priscilla took Apollos aside and he was preaching the, you know, the, the, the Word of God as best he knew it and very powerfully, very eloquently, but he was not up to speed on, on all the latest you know, news about Jesus mainly and the Holy Spirit and, and, and new ministry of the, of the church. And so they took him aside and they began to instruct him about the ways of God more perfectly, more thoroughly. And that's what we need to do as well, with patience and uh, bearing with the scruples of the weak and, and even the old superstitions and worldly ideas. Just, you know, don't get excited. <laughs> Relax. Let these folks develop in their Christian life just like you had to develop took you a lot of years to get to where you are, many of you, same with me. And so we have to have that kind of patience with others. So the problem was their conscience is weak. Look at verse, the end of verse 7. Being weak. Why is it weak? Because it's misinformed. It's badly programmed. Okay? It was misinformed and thus obvious knowledge, and so then they have a problem. How do we correct that? Bible teaching, that's all. We correct a misinformed conscience by reinforming it with the truth 
and with the Holy Spirit present, then the person who is hearing the teaching, if they're a new believer, will say, ah, I embrace that teaching. I know that that's true. I see it for myself written in the page that the pastor is preaching from, and it's true. There is only one God. So when that filters in, it begins to change their thinking, and they say, ah, my deciding function of whether I'm doing something right or wrong is now properly informed, and I can do better at choosing what to do or not to do. But this does not often happen overnight. Conscience cannot necessarily be transformed overnight by the infusion of knowledge. I mean, it's taken years perhaps to to badly program it. It might take a little while for it to become erased and reprogrammed, if you will, or written over with new information. Meanwhile, life has to go on. The person who has this conscience that's been misinformed has to make decisions. They have to live. They have to carry on the best way that they know how. And you have to interact with them in the best way that you can. Now, I'm making a huge assumption here. I'm saying them and you. What about you? What about your conscience? Is it properly informed? Am I making an assumption that we all are, you know, say the stronger brother, and but actually there are some among us that aren't quite there yet? You need to think about that. We need to be humble. Maybe my conscience has not been fully informed yet. I mean, none of us could say we're fully, perfectly informed, right? But humbly, we know that. But still, there's a level of maturity. Maybe we haven't reached to it yet. Somehow in our lives, perhaps. Let's be humble about that. But now, whether you... So, let me go back. We all know that there's only one God. Basic theological truth here. But you might find it hard to believe The fact of the matter is, however, that some believers in Corinth didn't get it. They had the belief that the idol was real and that the meat offered to it was actually spiritually contaminated. And so the question was, what do I do with that meat that's on the serving table before me? Maybe they had real life experiences with an idol. Have you ever heard of stories about that? People see very strange things. They've experienced very things. I'm not saying that those things are all figments of their imagination. They may, in fact, have been real. Demonic activity. And so they're like, man, I can't touch this. I can't go anywhere near there. Maybe these situations they saw or experienced were coincidental. Maybe some other natural explanation could be offered. But they could not eat that meat in good conscience because in their mind it was defiled. The problem was not with the meat. The problem was not with the truth of God or who God is, but the problem was with the uninformed conscience and thus conscience restrained in its liberty of the person who's looking at that meat. They thought by eating it they were sinning against God. Now, they're not exactly correct. They weren't if they ate meat with the proper understanding, with the truly informed conscience and true knowledge of God, then it would not be a sin for them, like it would not be a sin for you. But, in thinking that they would be eating a defiled thing, okay, I'm looking at that. It's defiled. I shouldn't eat it. But I'm going to eat it anyway. 
because I see my brother over there, my Christian brother, eating it. That itself is that attitude. I think it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Is displeasing to God. I'm going to go ahead and violate what God wants me to do. What I think God wants me to do, I'm going to do the opposite. Whether or not your present understanding is deficient, when you have that attitude, you've sinned. Now, for us, we know, like, we don't run into that kind of situation, maybe we think very often. Usually, we know something is wrong and we choose to do it anyway. This person's like, I'm not really sure. I don't think, I think it's contaminated, but I see this other guy. Eh. I'll go ahead and violate my conscience. The problem is, not with the meat, it's not with God, it's not with the truth, it's that you've set yourself up to be the arbiter of whether you can override your conscience or not. And the Bible is very clear, you must not override your conscience. It is the mechanism that God has given you to accuse you of doing wrong or to defend you if you have done right. So if you rise up to the level of saying, look, I have a cho- I'm have going to make the choice. I'm going to choose to violate my conscience. What you're doing is you're setting yourself up as an authority with an authority complex that does not bode well for your future and how you're going to conduct yourself. Because the next time you run into a situation, you're going to say, well, my conscience says don't do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And it just makes it easier the next time. My conscience says don't do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And you forget that Romans 14.23 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Are you eating that in, in faith? No, you're eating it in a violation of your conscience. You can't violate your conscience in good faith. So the conscience is so important that God instructs us that we must not violate it even if we are unsure that it is completely and properly informed. We should pursue first instruction to align the judgment of our conscience with right and wrong in God's view on those same issues. But until that happens, we must be very careful not to violate the conscience based on a hunch that we can get away with it. You might think, well, I got away with it that time. I'll try it the next time. And you're searing your conscience little by little. And you'll find out later on that you've messed up. Now, when we address others on issues like this, we should encourage them, learn learn first, then modify your choices after that. What was happening perhaps in Corinth was this. They were saying, look, let's just get this guy's conscience fixed by giving him the shock treatment. You know, make him face his fears. You know, if he's afraid of, afraid of spiders, put him in a room full of spiders. That'll fix him. You know, he doesn't think he can eat meat. Slap it down on his plate and make him eat it. That'll fix him. No, that's not it. First, inform the conscience so it's not violated, and then let him eat his meat. Okay? It's wrong-headed to do it in the reverse because of the damage that it causes to the conscience, besides the fact we haven't even talked about how's that, how, does that, how is that an expression of love for my brother? Okay, so that's verses 7 and Well, it's verse 7. I didn't actually say anything about 8, but you can see it in verse 8 if you just read it. Look at that. Food does not commend us to God. Why are you forcing this guy to try to eat to fix his conscience? Or why do you think you have to eat that? Look, you don't have to eat anything. 
Jesus said, my food is to do the will of God who sent me. It's not eating. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Yet our lives are all about eating, aren't they? Three times a day and snacks and everything else and going to the store and buying this and growing that and all that stuff. We're all focused on physical food of some necessity. But what about spiritual? Anyway, food doesn't commend us to God. The Lord Jesus told us in Mark 7, 18 and 19, He says, look, what goes into a man cannot defile him. Okay? As much as there might be a food you don't like, it does not spiritually defile you. Okay? It's what comes out that defiles. All right? Mark 7, He says, look, it can't because you eat it, you digest it, the remnants come out the other side, and that's it. It's done. It's not a spiritual matter. Okay, it's just food. Now, verses 9 to 13. Let's shift gears a little bit. So we've looked at how to put knowledge and love together in verses 1 to 3. We've looked at what the true knowledge is, verse 4 through 6. We've looked at the kind of combination of knowledge and conscience. Remember, knowledge informs conscience. And that gives rise to the idea of liberty of choice in certain areas. Now, this whole matter of liberty, we started to talk about it last week, but I've got to address it a little bit more this week. And this is where I could get myself in, in big-time trouble, okay? So you just uh, hang with me here, <clears throat> and uh, let's see what happens. Christian liberty is really the last item on Paul's list, and it's, I put it last for a reason, because it's less important than knowledge and love and conscience. Now, when we talk about Christian liberty in this context, we are not talking about liberty from sin. Okay? Freedom from sin. That's another related matter, um, but it's another matter. It's different. Okay? Just kind of put that off in a little box by itself. Person who commits sin is a slave of sin. John 8.34 Every person is born a slave to sin by nature, by choice, guilty because of imputation from Adam directly to that soul. Big time problems. There's only one way for that problem to be solved and that's in Christ. He solves all three of those problems, by the way. The imputed sin from us gets imputed to Him. His righteousness gets imputed to us. Okay? He changes our nature. We're given a new nature. And He helps us to choose to do right instead of wrong okay? by His Spirit in, in, in the growth and maturity and sanctification. But that's the matter of liberty from sin. When we become a believer, we are freed from sin and death. We are no longer enslaved to them. Instead of being slaves of sin, we become slaves of what? Well, of Jesus, but we become slaves of righteousness. Okay? Don't shy away from that word slave just because it has such a terrible connotation in American English or modern parlance. We are bond servants of God and of Christ. We are His servants. We do not serve ourselves. We do not serve another man. We, uh, we serve God first and foremost. Secondly, the idea of liberty is not liberty from the law. Okay. There's another concept talked about in Romans and in Galatians that under the law, you're kind of a slave to that law. 
but we've been made free from the law of Moses in Christ. You're not under the law, but under what? Grace in Christ. Okay? So, we're not talking about freedom from sin. We're not talking about freedom from the law. But we are talking about another kind of freedom. The freedom to choose in areas that, in isolation from other concerns, are not moral issues. Okay? That's what we're talking about here. Eating a piece of meat. It's not a sin issue. It's not a Law of Moses issue. It's, a, it's an issue of choice in the context of the culture in which these people live. So let me give another example. I'll give a bunch of examples, talk about a, di- a bunch of different areas. Uh, some people feel that they are not at liberty to, to work on the Lord's Day. Okay? Other people feel that they can work on the Lord's Day. Some people uh, concerned about the issue of owning or and using a television or a computer or eating shellfish. Okay, these are all issues in which the Christian has some latitude, we'll call it, another word for this freedom of choice that we have. In isolation from other considerations, they're not moral issues with a thou shalt not attached to them. Now, perhaps the, wor- the most difficult of those is the working on Sunday. Because in common Christian culture, Sunday has become, in the mind, a new Sabbath. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Okay, You look at your calendar, and on your calendar you have seven days. And if it's a proper calendar, the first day will be Sunday. And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Saturday is the last day. It's the seventh. And it is the Sabbath. Because in Hebrew, Shabbat is the seventh day. It's number seven. Okay? So why do we make number one be number seven? We can't count. That's why. We've lost the ability to think. Okay? The first day, the seventh day did not magically become the first day. The first day is still the first day. Okay? So, with that knowledge, armed with that, then we go back to the law of Moses and we see that you're not supposed to work on the seventh day. So, if anybody's to be bothered by working, they should be bothered by working on Saturday, not on Sunday. The first Christians, Sunday was the first day of their work week. They met in the evening because they had to work earlier. Okay? The same as it is in Israel today. First day of the week is Sunday. You work Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You take Shabbat Friday into Saturday off. That's your weekend. Okay. Well, anyway, where are we at? These issues of liberty. Um, So the Old Testament law, we're free from that law. That law does not apply to Sunday today. So once you're armed with that knowledge, then you can say, okay, I have some liberty. If I have to work today, I can. One of our brothers has a a kind of all-hands-on-deck situation at his work. He has to do some work today. Uh, He's not going to be condemned for that. Okay. Um, If you're a doctor and you have to do a surgery on Sunday afternoon, you're a nurse and have to work on a Sunday and do an evening shift or something like that, it's not like you're in terrible sin or something. But when the matters of liberty collide with other factors, then there can be problems. So examples. 
working on Sunday instead of going to church on Sunday. You need to work your schedule as best you can so that you can come and worship with God's people at the appointed time. Another one of our members has made that clear to her supervisor. I don't want to work on Sunday. Uh, Actually, several of our members have. And thankfully, that's been largely observed. I want to go to church. Well, sometimes you can go to church in the morning and work in the afternoon. Okay, that's, you know, compromise. I can understand that from time to time. But if you've scheduled your life so that you work two or four Sundays a month, you're missing the gathering of God's people, you're in violation of Scripture, a clear teaching of Scripture. Uh, what about um, the television? You know, using it to view inappropriate material or wasting hours in front of the computer. Those are not matters of liberty. Those are moral issues. Eating your favorite shellfish in front of a Jew who keeps kosher for religious reasons. Not a great idea. Okay? Have a little more sensitivity about that issue. These are factors that move the issue from the realm of liberty to the realm of a moral or sin issue. Now, there are many issues today that people claim are liberty issues. And I'll say this up front, even though I put it at the end of the list. A big reason that liberty issues are interpreted broadly today is to give a license or justification for sin. Okay, so uh, one is the issue of attire, clothing. Modesty is a moral issue, not a liberty issue. Alcohol. Drunkenness is a sin, not a liberty issue. And by the way, drunkenness starts very soon after drinking commences. Okay? And if it doesn't, then I have a question for you. How immoderate have you been in your drinking if your body is able to tolerate the alcohol so much so that you can take two or three drinks and feel no effect? What about voting? Now, I, I thought about this issue. I thought, hmm, perhaps choosing to vote or not to vote maybe could be considered a liberty issue. You might say, you know, my conscience, I'm, I'm a citizen of a different kingdom. Like, I, this is not my home. I'll let those folks who are, you know, all about this decide whatever, whatever, and I'm just going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to preach the gospel and I'm going to live that way. Maybe. Maybe it's a liberty issue. I'm just kind of giving you a thought experiment that I've had in my own mind. But, if you're beyond that question and you think I have a civic responsibility to vote, I think it's extremely painfully clear from the overall teaching of Scripture, that to vote for a pro-abortion, pro-atheist, pro-homosexual, anti-God, anti-church candidate is a sin. It's a moral issue. It's not a liberty issue. Then there are clear doctrinal matters. It's not a liberty issue to say, I believe whatever I want about creation. The Bible is very clear about what it teaches about creation. God created the heavens and the earth in the space of six days. Period. Well, He rested on the seventh day. I guess that's the period, all right? 
You get the point. You can't just believe anything that you want. When the Bible teaches something, you have to believe what it says. The issue of working to support a family. It's not a matter of liberty for a man to choose to sit at home and receive government assistance all the time. An able-bodied man is commanded to work. Thus, it's a moral issue. Obviously, there are exceptions. I said able-bodied. We understand somebody who's disabled. Somebody who's been put out because of, well, in this case, government policy has shut businesses down. It just seems so crazy. Um, you know, there's exceptions. There's issues. There's circumstances. that, But they are exceptions. They're, they're, they prove the rule. Another, some people have this idea that putting women, women in the pulpit of a church is an issue of liberty. It's a moral issue, rather. It's forbidden in Scripture, that's why. We don't have the permission to have a woman preacher. Number seven on my list, mother's role in raising their children and keeping the home. You can't hire that out. That's clear in Scripture, Titus 2, 4, and 5. It's not a liberty issue. Music preferences. If the music contains lyrics of ungodly beliefs or behaviors, it's not a liberty issue whether you listen to it or not. It's trash. Okay? It's a moral issue. The music is sourced in rebellion and drug culture and that it's not a liberty issue. So people you know, kind of gl- dump everything into the liberty category because they want to do what they want to do. And they want to sound sophisticated about it and put a spin on it. We have to look through that. And I'm not just saying we have to look through that in the lives of other people. What am I going to say next? We have to look through through that lens at our own lives and say, what have I been thinking is kind of like, eh, I can do whatever I want and maybe it's not eh. Maybe I need to rethink holiness here. Now, one, there are two, there are two issues actually going on in Corinth and here's where we go kind of to the next step. One was the problem of food purchased at the market or, or you're eating in, you know, at a person's home and it was sacrificed to an idol. That you know, we understand could be eaten with no problem, but that we have this conscience issue that we're going to have to deal with still even even more. How do we how do we address that? It was enough of a distance away from the worship of the idol. If you bought the meat in the market and ate it at home, enough of a distance that it didn't matter. You weren't you weren't defiled in your association with the idol. But then there was a the more sinister issue: eating food at the idol's temple. And that's alluded to in chapter 8, verses, uh, verse 10. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Okay, now you're a little bit closer to the idol here. Some believers were saying in Corinth, apparently, that because I can eat the meat with no effect, you know, there's no defilement, there's no corruption... Uh, I can just eat it. Then also, therefore, I must be able to attend functions at the idol temple where the food is eating. You see that? I can eat, and then I can eat right there. I can be right in with them. Doesn't affect me at all. You know, I can go to the bar, no problem. See, you've heard that before, haven't you? I'll be a, I'll be one of the holy ones there. Um, and so somebody sees you doing that 
and then to, to then he's encouraged to try to do it himself. But because his conscience is not, not even at step one, you know, where I can eat the meat, you've brought him into association with the idol. And to cause a brother to do this is to cause him to sin. In fact, to do it yourself, to go to the idol's temple and participate, is a sin as well. Look at chapter 10, just for a moment. We'll get there probably in a month or two, but uh, for the moment, we'll jump ahead. Chapter 10, verse 14. Paul says this simply, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Or let's say um, verse number 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Look, if you're truly a believer and you're showing up over at the idol temple, what do you think that makes the Lord feel like? About like a man whose wife has gone off with somebody else, wouldn't you think? That's kind of upsetting. Yeah. They were to flee from idolatry, not get closer to it. Eating the meat bought at the meat market was not idolatry, but going to there, to the idol's temple, and eating it there and participating in the service, that was idolatry. And so they were to leave that behind. So, Paul now is concerned with the case at hand about eating when my liberty is valued over love for others. Then you become a stumbling block to them. So the apostle now is not talking about how you yourself process a decision. What we've set up till now is, what do I do with this meat? My conscience. You know, I need to be informed and I need to make the right decision and all that. Now, that's all background. Now Paul's going to say, how do I use my liberty? I know all that stuff now. How do I use that and how does it affect my neighbor? And that's where love comes in to the equation. He's discussing how you, with your strong conscience, let's assume, can affect others by misusing your knowledge, your love, and your liberty. You know that you can eat the meat. Fine. That's correct. Not all is nothing. There are no wicked spirits in the meat. You're not going to get demon-possessed by eating the meat. It doesn't earn any merit with God. It doesn't make you worse. It doesn't make you better. You have all that knowledge and therefore you have an informed conscience and you have liberty. Wonderful. But the question is this. Do you have love to do the right thing with your knowledge, with your well-informed conscience, and with your liberty? If you just plow ahead and eat without regard for your brother sitting next to you, you can become an unnecessary cause of offense to that brother. Worse, if you partake at the temple, you're really confusing your brother with your actions and you could cause him to go back into idolatry. Paul will deal with that more when he tells them to flee, as I mentioned earlier. Have nothing to do with it. Now, this idea of love, remember, comes back from chapter 8, verse 1. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And so even though love does not appear, that word does not appear in 9 to 13, that's what this is about. That is... How do I interact with somebody else? Do I love them? This is all uh, 
also bolstered, by the way, by chapter 13. If I do all these wonderful things, speak with the tongue of men and angels, and have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries, and remove mountains, and bestow all my goods to feed the poor, if I don't have love, I'm a zero. I'm a big fat nothing. Okay? It doesn't help. It's of no value to God. You love your brothers. It's like if you have, this kind of a, maybe a modern example, you have a brother who's been saved out of alcohol. I mean, his life was dissolute. He's been gloriously saved by Christ. And you invite him to your home for a meal and you have wine on the table. Stupid, stupid, stupid. You're not loving your brother at all. Okay? That's foolishness. That's sin. You're going to cause your brother to stumble again when he gets another taste of the bottle. Okay? Not loving. Your behavior can induce your Christian brother to conduct himself in a way that violates his own conscience. That's bad for him. And the fact that you caused it is bad for you. You may ruin your brother. Look at verse number uh, 12. Well, look at verse 11. And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. This, this elevates, this highlights the destructive nature of the behavior that you can do to somebody. And I think perish is a little too strong because if somebody's really a brother, they will never perish. Remember John chapter 3, verse 16 tells us, we will never perish. God will keep those that are His own. John chapter 10, 27 to 30. No one can snatch them out of His hand. But the idea is ruination. You can ruin somebody's life for a long time or a great lengthy season if you encourage them into things that they are not supposed to be doing. And this is highlighted. Look, you're taking a precious soul for whom Christ died and you're treating Him like that? How could you? Christ died for him. He is a precious possession to God. You cannot mistreat God's precious ones. You're encouraging him to do bad things with his conscience. Do you not care for that brother for whom Christ died to redeem? Do you love him and Christ enough to restrain your liberty until he is more well informed? Or... Of course, you restrain what you think is your liberty because your liberty is actually not your liberty. Remember, they said, I can eat, so then I can go to the idol temple. Oops, they've overstepped the liberty box. They're outside of the liberty box now. They're in the sin box. The bottom line is that unloving, liberty-elevating behavior is a sin against the brother because it harms the operation of his conscience. Remember, you are not to violate your own conscience And God is so serious about that principle that He enjoins you not to induce another brother to violate His conscience. You see that? So Paul takes from this the application of verse 13. Therefore, if my food makes my brother to stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother to stumble. In other words, he's saying, I will do what it takes to avoid causing that brother to stumble and to damage his conscience. So, we're assured that there is only one true God. 
Consequently, we could eat a meat offered and sacrificed to an idol because the idol is nothing. But we cannot go to the temple of the idol. But not everyone grasps all that, so they have a problem of conscience even to eat the food in the first place. And we can cause more problems by overemphasizing, well, I know, and therefore my conscience, and therefore I'm at liberty, and I don't want my liberties to be constrained because they're my liberties. That's what I want to do. That's why, you know, before claiming on some matter that, you know, it's a liberty issue, think about, is it really? Is it really of no import to God or Christ what I do about this thing? And if I'm just using liberty as a justification, that smacks of pure selfishness, doesn't it? My rights, my liberty. Listen, watch that selfishness. It's insidious. It's in there. It just works all the time. Very dangerous. So instead of overemphasizing knowledge and liberty, we need to emphasize love toward our brothers. Love is the guardrail to excess liberty or excesses in liberty. Does that make sense? Love is the guardrail that keeps us from popping out into something that we're not supposed to be doing because it harms others. Love is that guardrail. Why are you going to why are you going to care if you can't eat because you have family members you can't eat uh, shellfish? Just give it up. You know, eat something else. You'll survive. <laughs> um, more important to have that testimony. So that's pretty much the end of what I have given you there. By the way, you'll notice on the notes I didn't put any heading or anything. Just slip that in or next to the one from last week. This is part two from last week. But there are other you know, kind of modern day examples that we could think of that have to do with liberty and conscience issues. And you could probably come up with a list, well, similar to the list that I gave you, which would have been on, on what, page, uh, page six and seven of your notes. And perhaps there are others, and maybe you have a question about something that is a matter of liberty, or, or is it not, or what do you think, Pastor, from your understanding of, of Scripture? We've talked about consumption of alcoholic beverages. Um, I've, I've done that before. It's just a kind of an kind of an easy example to use. We talked about music. You know, people use uh, uh, the Liberty Card on music. Well, music is amoral. You know, where did you get that idea? What other things in in life are amoral? Like just flat out, they have no nothing. They're not associated with any morality at all. It's not as easy to make a list of that of those kinds of things as you think because sinful people can twist anything and make it immoral. <clears throat> but when so that 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 falsehood of music is kind of a liberty thing has driven church music into commonality with the world and into basically into profanity. I don't mean profanity like bad words, I mean profaneness that it becomes common. You know, yes, there are worldly forms of music and there are sacred forms of music and sometimes those seem to have some overlap, like classical music, for example. Uh, But that doesn't mean there aren't fairly well-defined categories. And we need to evaluate carefully. And sometimes those categories kind of shift over time. Why? Because culture shifts and style shift and, and all of that. We need to, you know, be reminded that there are such categories. And we don't want profane things 
in the church. So that's an area where liberty can be wrongly um, you know, used as an excuse. Alcohol, the same thing. I hear it all the time in broader evangelicalism. There are people who are you know, enthusiastic about alcohol. I mean, you know, go to a, a brew pub and have a Bible study. Or start brewing yourself. It's cool, you know. You can learn about fermentation and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's considered a liberty issue because there's no absolute prohibition in the Bible against drinking anything with alcoholic content. Well, there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, they would say even Jesus made water into wine, so what's wrong with it? I think he made new wine, very low alcohol content, because he wasn't about to make people get drunk at that wedding in Cana of Galilee. Paul, you know, oftentimes people say, well, Paul told Timothy, you know, uh, use a little uh, uh, wine for your stomach's sake. See? Ah, there it is. But you notice what context that's in? Medicine. You know, you have an upset stomach. What do you take today? A drink? You know, or do you take Pepto? Or you take, uh, what, what's the, what are some of the other ones? You know, you take a medicine that's designed for that specific problem that doesn't intoxicate you. So that's kind of a, a bad argument to use for liberty about, about the matter of alcohol. And anyway, alcohol is not an issue that exists in isolation or is hypothetical to all other issues. Uh, you have the, you know, is it wise? Is it best for me and my family? Does it help my brothers? Does it affect a new brother who's come out of alcohol? How badly does it influence my kids? What about drunkenness? When does that set in? You know, why do people drink anyway? They like the taste. Is that all? Or is there something else? Oh, they like the buzz. What's the buzz? Buzz driving is drunk driving. Okay? Um, one that's more pointed is the matter of wearing masks today. There's a real conscience and liberty issue attached to that. Have you thought about it that way? Wearing of masks. In the context of worship, they're not required in our state anyway. So it's not an issue of breaking a secular rule or law. So it becomes a matter of conscience and liberty. I know, know, knowledge, what the law says. I know that we're free to wear or not wear masks in this context. I'm not talking about stores and you know things like that. Because of the separate sphere sovereignty of the church and state, and because of the requirement of speech intelligibility in worship, I can't imagine preaching with a mask on. You know, it's it's part of helping us to understand that you can see what I'm saying and that it comes out without a muffled uh, expression. In in our worship and teaching, that's important. We've always talked about speech intelligibility long before masks were even a, a thing in our mind. And we've taken appropriate safety steps to prevent entry and spread of a virus among us. Can we perfectly guarantee that? Absolutely not. I don't, I don't even think it's worth my while to to lose any sleep over that that issue. Of course, it's impossible to risk reduce to zero. But there's not everyone in everyone that clear-headed knowledge. And you see how I'm applying the text. Yes, we have knowledge. 
But not everybody shares it that way or looks at it that way. Or has the same kind of circumstances. So some people go about literally with a conscience that, that if I don't wear a mask, I'm deadly. And I exhibit a lack of care toward others. And those are the real substantial factors that come into their mind. So then we come in, well, not wearing a mask you know, can be offensive. And wearing a mask can become offensive. If you don't know why, think about that for a little while. Or mandating wearing a mask can be offensive. So given these factors and the makeup of our church, I made the decision to leave the decision in your hands instead of making a corporate law other churches have decided differently. It's true. Other churches have decided differently. And that's fine. That's their, that's their decision and their context. Um, our Howell Church, they're wearing masks, except for the people who are preaching. And I think maybe leading music. But they are in the congregation. But I was not going to put myself or church leadership in the place of being mask police, make believers uncomfortable, and push them away by commanding them to wear a mask when it's not commanded in Scripture. It's very off-putting to have to do that to the recipient of such command. Now, it seems most of the church here is comfortable with this. And you're the ones that are here, so you're the ones that matter. I mean, obviously the people online that are part of our body matter as well. I'm not trying to say they don't, but I'm talking about you know outsiders, people that have nothing to do with FBC they just live out there and, and we live in here. Okay, um, It seems most of us are comfortable with this approach. Some are wearing masks because they have special health concerns. Some because they circulate uh, with many people and thus are more exposed to a virus. Others have parents or grandparents who are at higher risk. And, and to wear a mask in those situations is wise. But we made our policy clear from the beginning so you could make a decision about whether to come or not come. Under those, but I, under those conditions. But I'm aware that it's a conscience matter. It bothers some people whether should I wear it or should I not wear it. And that weighs on me, but then I still have to make a decision about what to do. And it's not a matter of not caring about other people to say we don't require the mask. We deeply care about other people. We care about their physical life, but we also and more importantly care about what? Their spiritual life. We trust the Lord deeply as well in this. We don't run in fear. We take steps like distancing and reducing handshakes and hugs and maintaining a comfortable distance during conversations. But we want to see each other and share the joy of a smile and to address the real effects of social isolation that have occurred in our culture because of the fear that has been pushed upon us. This all reminds us that there can be a great difference of opinion between groups of people on a matter and a policy decision has to be made that accommodates as many as possible in a wise way. Um, Have I made the right decision? Well, the Lord knows that. Uh, You might disagree. um, And you know what? I might disagree with you. But we are, I hope, mature enough and with enough understanding of Scripture like this 1 Corinthians 8 passage to be able to understand one another and, and, the, and how, these, how this comes about. So, that's tough. It's an application issue of this passage. But remember, knowledge or 
not yet enough knowledge. Conscience, informed by that knowledge. Liberty that opens up because of knowledge. But love that is supposed to control all of them so that we don't cause our brother to stumble and be ruined. Those are the principles. And uh, they might be difficult to apply, but they can be applied. And hopefully this has been of help to you this morning in that way. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to think through Scripture and to apply it, not just in some of these example issues that we've talked about, but in the ones that each of us has to deal with on Monday morning or throughout the week when uh, the rubber hits the road and we have to live as Christians in this world. And so I pray that this will at least inform us a little more and encourage us to think biblically about the things that we have to face. In Jesus' name, amen.